Well, I tell you that I am incredibly excited about this new series that we're doing. It's called High Faith in Low Places. And I have, I have been praying into this. I have been pondering into this. I've been writing into this. And, and I, I really believe that over the next several weeks here, God is going to speak to us through his word and help us in navigating the, the unique times that we're in, navigating forward, navigating in a positive manner. And I just I encourage you to grab some paper, take some notes. If you downloaded the note page off the website, then I encourage you to utilize it right now. I think that is going to bless you. I think it is going to help you. Why, why high faith in low places? Why, why this series? You may have noticed that there is a pandemic in our world. It may have crossed your radar that things are not quite the same as they have historically been. You may have noticed or heard something about this thing called COVID-19. Now, I, I'm, I know that you have, and we've all been affected by it. Many people have been uh, infected. Everyone has been affected. Some have even died. We grieve the losses. We thank God for the recoveries. And we must continue to move forward. In this process, we've realized some things that have been very changed, very much changed. Globally, things have shifted. Nationally, things have shifted. Locally, things have shifted. If you had told me a year ago that, uh, that we would have been in a lockdown scenario, I would have said, no, not here in the United States of America. If you'd have said that the government and the governing authorities would say that you need to stay in your homes for a long time and that the, even the church itself should not meet in person or on site for an extended period of time, I would have said, not going to happen. Not going to happen here in the United States of America. It, it was just an unthinkable reality. But when crisis hit, when the pandemic bloomed, we went into a unique mode that we had never been in before and shut down became our reality. Right or wrong, whatever your thoughts are on the subject, things changed. Our lives changed. Our activities became more managed. Our businesses became more regulated when they could be open, when they could not be open. Recreational activities being managed by governing authorities. Even what we wear, right down to personal attire, being a mask or no mask, we have, we've been told this is what it ought to be. This is how it is. And, and in some place that's been enforced in different ways. Citizens of, of nations that are more controlled and general by their governments responded somewhat differently than we did here in the United States. Right or wrong, it's the reality. Some here in the United States really have pushed back on governmental authorities. And again, right or wrong. But ultimately, the vast majority acquiesced really for the desire to 
protect the health and safety of people in our, in our communities. And what we discovered is that with a convincing enough reason or enough fear, good, bad, indifferent, I don't know how you feel about that, you can feel any way you want, but with enough fear or a convincing enough reason, previously unthinkable measures could be put in place. And that began many people asking the question, are we in the end times? And I put the end times in air quotes there because that's kind of a, a Christianese term that talks about or in, uh, references the, the time in Scripture that, it said, that the Bible says time will be no more. And there's a, a, a preceding set of events that occurs before time is no more. And, and, uh, and some of the things that we have experienced most recently could kind of be um, uh, likened to or they're kind of similar to some of the things that the scripture talks about and, and we could talk about that at another, t- at another time but when people are asking me this question uh, I know that there are simply four facts that I can rely on regarding all of this and I'm going to list those four facts for you right now. Fact number one is that we don't know when Jesus is returning and so we cannot say exactly when the end of time will be. I cannot say that. Uh, the scripture tells me that I cannot know that. And so it can tell, I can tell in scripture, and the scripture actually indicates that we can know the seasons, but, uh, but seasons are not short periods of time, and prophetic seasons are not short periods of time. So we cannot know that. Fact number two that I'm absolutely certain about is that we are closer to the return of Christ today than we were yesterday. I'm 100% certain of that. And and I am 100% certain that we are closer to the end of time today than we were yesterday. And guess what? This is going to blow your mind. Tomorrow we're going to be even a little closer. If he doesn't show up tonight, which Jesus, I'm okay if you do, but if he doesn't show up tonight, he, he needed my permission. I guess I thought that. I don't know. But, uh, but if he doesn't show up tonight, then, then tomorrow we'll be one step closer. Fact number three that I know for sure. Neither scripture nor prevailing understanding of the end times or biblical prophecy, neither of them tell me that things are going to get more godly and overall better for believers as we get closer to the end of time. Nothing says that. Everything says that things will be a little rough for believers at the least. And so we, we need to be aware of that. And then fact number four that I know for sure is that the enemy fights... But God has already won. God has already won this battle. He wins in the end. And those that are with him, you and I, we win too. I know that for absolute certainty. So this is not bad news. When we think about the end of time and, and, uh, or uh, in the Christianese version, end times, this is not bad news. That's not something that we fear as believers. It's actually our eternal hope coming nearer to us. This is something that we're excited about. It's something that we celebrate. It's actually a very good thing. 
And our job is to choose Jesus, love Jesus, follow Jesus, serve Jesus, and share Jesus between now and then. Maybe you've heard those thoughts before. But our series goal, what we're trying to accomplish today and throughout this series is simply this. We want to answer the question, how should believers effectively live, operate, and make an impact when they are not the majority and they do not have control? How do do you live effectively, operate life, and make an impact in the world when you're not the majority and you do not have control? We're not the majority in the world, and believers do not have control in this world. And I believe that we can learn something from four young Hebrew young men, teenagers really. We can learn something from their story that's found in the book of Daniel. When you think about the book of Daniel, there's all kinds of things involved. And a lot of people right now that are maybe a little more familiar with with Scripture might be thinking, well, he's going to talk about eschatology now. He's going to start talking about end times and and all the prophecies. And and we will probably allude to some of that throughout this this, uh, series. But that is not our focus. There's also a story involved in the book of Daniel where four young men live extraordinary lives and make an incredible impact impact for the kingdom of God and they were not in control and they were never the majority and we have a lot to learn from them the setting is in the kingdom of Judah see Israel at large had been split into two kingdoms there was the kingdom of Israel and then there was the kingdom of Judah the kingdom of Israel had already long been put into, uh, taken into captivity and overwhelmed, but the kingdom of Judah had remained strong for a longer period of time. Assyria was the, the dominating force of the day, and, and Judah had kind of come underneath the rule of Assyria, but Assyria was weakening, and now Egypt had become the, the, one, the kingdom that they were really connected to. In fact, uh, the 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 Pharaoh of Egypt was, was actually doing some war against Judah and, and, and pushing their way and trying to, trying to really take some new territory because there was another kingdom that had been rising up and becoming very powerful, and that was the kingdom of Babylon. And so uh, the, the king of Judah, his name was Josiah, and Josiah fought hard, but he died in battle against Egypt. And now Egypt became the ruler over the nation of Judah. Judah, again, is the people of God. It's the the Hebrew nation. And now uh, Josiah's son rises up to power. But after he's the king for only three months, the pharaoh of Egypt calls for him and says, I want you to come to Egypt. And when he gets to Egypt, he never returns. And his younger brother becomes the new ruler and the new ruler's name is Jehoiakim if you're looking for a baby name right now I've heard that there's a number of babies on their way so Jehoiakim that's a that's a good name Um, they won't get picked on in school at all probably just be called Jay that'd probably work so Jehoiakim's ruling Judah now Jehoiakim is not following God he's considered an evil king in fact 
in the, the Jewish people even today when they say the Haggadah, they, they talk about Jehoiakim being the, and the personification, if you will, of evil and pride and arrogance. So Jehoiakim is not a good king at all. In fact, when the prophet Jeremiah, who is, who is living in the same era, when he is talking about Jehoiakim, he, he compares Jehoiakim with his father Josiah, and he, and he says that Josiah fought against Egypt. Jehoiakim surrendered to Egypt. He said that Josiah, when sin was found in his life and, and when he saw that Judah was not following God, he ripped his clothes in repentance. And Jehoiakim, his son, when he heard the same, that Judah was not following God, he ripped the scrolls of the word of God and he burned them in rebellion. They almost couldn't be more different. Jehoiakim began serving as king, but also as Egypt's willing vassal. So Egypt would, would charge uh, taxes. Jehoiakim would collect the taxes and send them on to Egypt. He ruled Judah while he served Egypt. But in all of this, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon was rising up and, and he came into the, to the territory and Egypt tried to fight against him, but they lost. And now the scripture tells us that there was a siege against Jerusalem. And this is where we pick up in the book of Daniel, chapter number one. This is kind of what's going on in the world at that particular point. And, and, and the story begins with kind of a national understanding of what's going on. Daniel chapter one, verse number one says, during the third year of Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. So he didn't, he didn't destroy it at this point. He besieged it meaning that he surrounded it, he wouldn't let anybody come in or go out, and he was controlling the city absolutely. Ultimately, Jerusalem had to surrender to Nebuchadnezzar. It says in verse number 2, the Lord gave him victory. Now remember those words. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah. Now remember the next phrase, and permitted him and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, again, a great baby name, kind of has a lot of panache, if you will, his chief of staff to bring the palace of the young men of Judah's royal family and noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. So now, now what we're seeing is we, we've looked at the national scope. A nation is now going to serve another nation, one king serving another king. And now we have the transition into the direction that this is all going to go. They're, all, they're, gonna, they're going to serve Babylon. And now Nebuchadnezzar's back in Babylon and he's saying, this is how we're going to run this thing. And he's, then now, now it's starting to get personal. He said, I want you to 
pick up some the, the young men and he gives them a, a list of qualities that he's looking for and I want you to bring them to Babylon. Now this is, was not unusual. This was actually quite common in the day that if one kingdom overwhelmed another that they would take their best and their brightest and they would take them into themselves and they would begin to train them in their cultural norms and in their way of doing business and try to bring the two kingdoms together as much as possible. This was quite common. And so he says, I want you to bring them to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men. Make sure they're well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And so the king said, I want you to, I want you to, to grab these guys and do all these things, and now I'm going I'm to resource you for it. He says, I'm assigning them a daily ration of food and wine from my own kitchens, and they're going to be trained for three years. So this isn't a short-term situation. And then they would enter the royal service. And now we, 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 we've talked about the group that would be coming to Babylon, and now let's talk about some specific people. Babylon, uh, Daniel, rather, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah were four of the young men chosen, all from the tribe of Judah. The chief of staff renamed them with these Babylonian names, and you probably recognize them better. Daniel was called Belteshazzar. Now there's a great name for you, Belteshazzar. Hananiah was called Shadrach. Mishael was called Meshach. And Azariah was called Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and then Daniel. These Hebrew boys are in a low place. The selfishness of their king in Judah had brought them to a place of captivity. He served Egypt because it made him comfortable. And now he was still in his palace in Judah and they were, as, were captives in Babylon. They were alive, but they were not in control. They were together but they were not a majority. It wasn't their fault, but it was their reality. It's a low place. And the story that we will unpack is all about how they, they, they receive some opportunities and they make some decisions and, and it's filled with divine blessing and, and it's filled with uh, political plots and plotting and, and it's filled with divine revelation. And, and we know this because we've read the story of Daniel, but they don't. They didn't grow up hearing about Daniel in the lion's den and if they did, they didn't think, oh, that's me. That's going to happen to me. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did not get to read about the fiery furnace and God's deliverance. No, that was their future. And they had no idea. They, they, they didn't know what was coming. All they knew in this moment is that they were captives of a powerful king. They were far from everything that they knew. And their whole world had changed. Remember, the, these are young men of affluence. They, they are young men who are of noble families, of the royal family. These are young men who, if you looked at them before this moment, you would have said, these guys have potential and possibility in their life. I mean, these guys are going somewhere. The world is their oyster. They, I mean, their world, in their world, they are the somebodies. 
And now, now they have no idea what they're going to be. If they don't pass the test, they can't be in royal service. If, if they can't fulfill the mission that the king gives them, they're, they're going to be cast out. They're, they're captives right now, not in control of their own future. Their futures are unknown. Their destinies are unclear. Their lives are altered forever. Some people feel that way today. Some folks in our faith family, some folks in our community, we feel like before all this, I had a role going. I had something happening. I, I, I was making some progress. Maybe you're a teenager and you're blessed to live in this area. And you're like, I, I, I had the, the college picked out and I, I had the situation going and it, it looked like things were on the up and up and now, now I don't know. Maybe you had just launched your business and, and things had started rolling and, and, and man, you had your first great, couple of great orders and, and things were really rocking and then all of a sudden. The economy was rolling and now we don't know. There's uncertainty everywhere. Even the things that we do know, they might change in a couple hours. We also know that for sure. These are realities that we are facing and you may be feeling those things right now in your work, in your social engagements. How about in schooling? If you're a parent or you're a student, how's that going to roll? How's that going to work? What changes are going to need to be made? None of it's easy. A lot of it's unclear. But here's our big idea today. Our big idea is this, that God alone is in control. God alone is in control. It's not easy, but God is in control. In Daniel chapter 1, verse number 2, remember it says, The Lord gave him victory and permitted him to take. The Lord gave him victory and permitted him to take. Nebuchadnezzar was no doubt a, a wise ruler. He, no doubt he was a smart guy. No, no doubt he had military expertise. No doubt all those things are true. But Nebuchadnezzar was not the one who made this happen. It says God permitted him. God gave him victory and God permitted him to take the, the items out of the temple. He was not responsible for all that went on. Yes, he made the choices, but he did not determine the outcome god was in control proverbs chapter 19 verse 21 says many are the plans in the mind of a man all kinds of plans but it is the purpose of the lord that will stand what he's telling us is that our plans sometimes don't work out the way we thought Sometimes we make a plan and we start working on it and it doesn't go the way we hoped that it would. But the plan of God, the purpose of God, that will stand. That will stand solid and certain and secure. That plan will never change and cannot fail. That's the plan of God. God is in control. His purpose will prevail over all things at all times in all places of that we can be certain so i don't know what's going on in your world right now but i can tell you whatever it is god is in control and that brings us to thought number one and we only have one thought today control is not incremental 
God is in control or he's not. If I was to say I am almost in control, what I'm saying is I am not in control. There's no such thing as almost control. Either you're in control or you're not. God is either in control of it all or he's not in control of it all. So how in control is he? Colossians chapter 1 verse 16 says, For through him, this is talking about Jesus, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. So he's covering both spheres of influence, earthly influence and heavenly influence. He made all the things that we can see, okay, so that's visible, physical things, and things we can't see. So that's spiritual things, that's emotional things, that's mental things, that's things that, that are not perceived by our vision. Then he goes on to say, such as thrones, okay, these, is, these are uh, strongholds, these are uh, areas of authority, thrones, kingdoms, rulers. So not only is he the authority over the throne or the positional authority, he's, he's a ruler over the, the kingdom, which is organizational authority. And he is over rulers, which is personal authority and authorities in the unseen world. Okay, so uh, authorities in the spiritual realm. He, he's the ruler over that too. Everything, now how, how in control is he? Everything was created through him, so it couldn't be if it didn't come through him and for him. So it cannot be unless it's serving him. He existed before anything else, so he precedes all things. Nothing precedes him, and he holds all creation together. So if God took himself out of the picture, there would be no picture anymore. You cannot get in control any more than God is. There is no way to be in any greater level of control than what God says he is through Jesus Christ. He encompasses all we understand, all we imagine, all we can't imagine, seen and unseen. And the four Hebrew boys are walking into captivity and God is in control. But here's our issue. Our issue is this, that we usually gauge God's sovereignty based on our personal situation and condition. I determine if God is in control based upon how I'm doing. We, we say stuff like this. I'm struggling today. The, the enemy's really fighting. The devil has control. Now, you may not say it in those words, but you use your own vernacular to express the same sentiment. If things are going our way, God's working. God's on the move. I frankly do not like that phrase whatsoever. God never stopped moving. He didn't like camp for a while, then start moving. He's always moving. And he's everywhere. So where is he moving to? Okay, I'm going to move on from that particular concept right there. So if life's smooth, we say God's working. If I'm struggling, the devil's winning. If my candidate is elected, God is ruling. And if my candidate loses, the Antichrist is rising. 
If my business is booming, God is providing. And if the doors are closing, the enemy is stronger. Uh, If the relationship goes well, if the relationship doesn't go well, you see my point. When I'm doing, when everything's going my way, then then I know God is in control. But when things aren't going my way, then I question and I'm concerned. But here, I want you to see what is the common reality, the common factor in everything that I'm talking about. The common factor is me. I'm I'm the pivot point, if you will. I'm the one that it all goes around. I am the center of the universe. And God's authority is being judged by my position. And my condition. It's a me-centered narrative. But here's the problem. The scripture never says that I am in control. It says that he is in control. So he's in control no matter what's going on in my life, no matter what's going on in your life. He is, he is on the throne of heaven and he is in control. I'm not on the throne. And I am not in control. So he is either Lord of all or Lord not at all. There is no in-between. And if we settle this in our heart and understand that he is sovereign in every situation, then it allows us to walk with authority and confidence no matter what's going on in our world. And we're going to talk about that in the life of these four Hebrew men in a while. We forget that we're involved in a greater scenario, a greater story, a larger picture. The four Hebrew boys are in the picture, but they're not the purpose of the picture. They're not the focus of the picture. Their world, their life, their situation is there to show us as an example of what God can do when you're not in the majority and you do not have control. They teach us the lesson. The greater scenario here is that Isaiah and Jeremiah had said both that judgment was coming years before and if Israel would repent, then God would forgive them and and they didn't repent. They didn't repent and so this was simply an outcropping of prophetic utterance. The prophesied plan coming to pass. The purpose and fulfillment of God's plan. The issue was the nation, not the person, but the person was in the nation. And so therefore the person was affected. But we get caught up in ourselves and we forget the bigger picture. The bigger picture today is that God is calling all to repentance. He's saying, I will give you eternal life for your life. I'll give it to you. But I want to be in control of your life. The bigger picture is that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And everything is pushing us to the place of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And giving glory to God the Father. That's what everything is pointing toward. Everything's not pointing toward me being awesome all the time and having everything I ever wanted. I I wouldn't complain if it were. But that's not the story. That's not the purpose of the story. 
And eventually Jesus Christ is going to return. He might return for us individually as we pass from life into eternity. Or he might come for us corporately as he takes his bride, the church, home in the taking away or what's commonly referred to as the rapture of the church. But everything between now and then has the singular purpose of bringing all men to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. And what is our role? Our role is an ambassador. That's what we do. We're an ambassador of Christ. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They they were looking at a future where they were not the majority and they did not have control, but they knew that God was in control. He was in control. And he was about to use them in incredible ways. Their lives were going to go places they'd never dreamed. They were going to have influence in ways they never could have imagined. In fact, had Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, and Daniel stayed in Judah and not gone into captivity, we probably would not be talking about them today. But they were created for the place that they were in. They were called for the moment that they were in. They were designed to handle the problem. And the problem had a purpose. It declared the glory of God in a pagan world. They couldn't have done it if they weren't in captivity. Sometimes we say things like, well, I I don't feel like he's in control. I just don't feel like it. Feelings don't determine futures. Faith and action does. We say things like, well, I did the right things, but things went wrong. Maybe. But there's a bigger picture. There's a bigger picture. And the way to walk through this is remaining faithful to the one who controls it all. Your story is not over. What do you think those those Hebrew boys thought as they jumped into the carriage or onto the horse or onto the camel or whatever their mode of transportation walked down the trail, headed to Babylon? You think they knew? Do you think Daniel knew that he would be the advisor to multiple kings of multiple empires? Do you think he knew that we'd be reading his story today, reading his writing today? See, here's the thing. I don't think they knew. I don't think they knew it at all. But I think as they were on their way to Babylon, I think... Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego I don't think they were bemoaning their fate I think they were planning their moves I think they were saying all right we're we're going into a land that we don't know we're not the majority we don't have control but our father does 
And here's the thing. None of these guys know that our daddy runs this place. None of them. So I'm going to walk in here like I'm the boss's kid. I'm going to talk to the general manager and I'm going to be respectful and we're going to talk about that. He thinks he's in control, but he's not. He's not because my daddy is. And there, there were a few moments whenever these guys said, hey, <laughs> King, live forever. <laughs> but you ain't in control. They were respectful, but bold. They knew their father was in control. And here is the series text right here. Daniel chapter 11, verse number 32. The second half of the chapter of the verse. It says, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. Do you know that your daddy's in control? If you read that in the New King James with the King James, it says, the people who know their God shall be strong and do great exploits. I like that. Either one of them is right, but I, I like exploits. That just sounds awesome. I don't think Daniel, Shadrach, and Meshach, and Abednego were, were walking down the, the trail going, oh man, life is over. It'll never be the same. I think they were walking down the trail going, all right, God, what you got for us? What are we called to do? What's the purpose and the problem? Your daddy's in control. You've got this. You can thrive in a place where you're not the majority and you do not have control because you don't have to have control. You never did and God never gave it up. Never gave it up. And so I'm going to pray for you right now and I want you to just ask, Holy Spirit, what are you saying to me in this service? Lord Jesus, sometimes we cannot see the end of the story. Sometimes you don't give us the end result. And right now we're looking at a reality in which there's a lot of uncertainty, but one thing that is not uncertain is who is in control of it all. You, you, were, you started it all. You were before all things. And in you and through you, everything consists. It's held together. If you ever let it go, it would disappear. That's how, that's how small it is in comparison to who, how big you are and who you are. I pray right now that you would give us the wisdom, the eyes to see the control that you have. You are so far above what we can understand. So much greater than we can comprehend. What you can do is exceedingly above all that we can ask or think. And you're in control of our lives and you're in control of the world in which we live. There is none like you because there is none but you. And so today, we open up our eyes and we recognize that if nothing else is true, you are in control. You are in control. And we thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen.